MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, December 27th, 2019. I'm your host, AG, and today we have MSNBC legal analyst Glenn Kirshner in an interview that aired on July 7th, 2019. And we speak with him about his insights into Mueller. And this was just ahead of Mueller's public testimony to Congress, which took place July 24th. That's just one day before the infamous call between Trump and Zelensky, for which the president has now been impeached when he withheld aid and dangled a White House meeting in exchange for investigations into his political rival and, of course, the origins of the 2016 Russia investigation. So please enjoy this interview. Glenn Kirshner is wonderful. With me today is MSNBC legal analyst. He spent 30 years as a federal prosecutor with the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, and he spent a lot of time working with Mueller. So please welcome Glenn Kirshner. Glenn, thanks for coming on Mueller, she wrote. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're so happy to have you on because we want to get some expert insight uh, into Mueller before his upcoming testimony to the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. I think it's about in 10 days from the airing of this episode. And uh, those of us who are keenly familiar with what's in his report and have been following this all along probably aren't going to learn anything new uh, and might be slightly feeling disappointed with his testimony. But that's not really what makes this appearance so important, is it? No, I mean... There's been so much disinformation put into the public square by Trump, by Barr, by all of their enablers that I think part of what we're, part of the reason Bob Mueller's testimony is going to be so important, it's, it's not only to bring to the public's attention his findings, um, particularly with respect to the many felony obstruction of justice offenses Trump committed, but it's going to be hopefully to um, rebut the epic disinformation campaign that Trump and company have been waging against the American people with their uh, with their very effective mantra: no obstruction, no collusion. Um, hopefully, Bob Mueller will find some ways, and hopefully, Congress will come up with some pointed, precise questions to help Bob Mueller find some ways to combat that disinformation campaign. Yeah, and, and that's all. Yeah, thanks to uh, Attorney General uh, William Barr, whose uh, four-page quote-unquote summary of Mueller's findings uh, sort of it, it totally misled the public. We saw that woman in the Justin Amash rally say, gosh, I had no idea there wasn't anything uh, about Trump that was negative, or there wasn't anything negative in, in the Mueller report about Trump. So it's, it's, I think that that's kind of why this uh, testimony is so important. And Mueller has said that his report is his testimony, and, and he warned that he won't talk about anything that's not in his report. But as you were just indicating, do you think if, if the questions are asked properly that he might answer some of the critical uh, outstanding questions we have, like, was there actually no collusion or no obstruction? Or if the president weren't the president, would he be indicted? I, I guess my inclination is when Bob Mueller says my report is my testimony, he means it. But, you know, he, he is a by the book guy, law and order. He's a rule follower. So I actually think what you referenced a minute ago when Bill Barr issued his um, 
misleading summary of Mueller's report, it really cut against Bob Mueller's grain to issue a written rebuttal of that and say, hey, look, Barr, you mischaracterized my findings and conclusions and you're misleading the public. Cut it out. That is unlike Bob Mueller because he's sort of the king of circumspection. But, you know, he's also a soldier. And in the middle, I used to be an army jag in the 80s. We are taught that you have to, number one, obey a lawful order. But number two, you have to disobey an unlawful order. And sometimes those two things bump up against one another. But going back to your question, I think if the, the questions are precise enough, then Mueller will have to answer some things, even if they are somewhat outside of his report. So for example, one of the questions I would ask him is, look, Special Counsel Mueller, you've heard President Trump say over and over again, your investigation found no obstruction. Is that true or false? I think if he's answering, even within the four corners of his 448-page report, the answer is, that is false. Our investigation did not find no obstruction. Same question with respect to collusion. Um, so I think if crafted properly, I, I hate to say some of this is an exercise in getting some usable sound bites from Bob Mueller, but he, here's what I would do. If you can get those sound bites where Mueller says definitively, no, we did not find no obstruction. We did not find no collusion. Then I think it's on the media. Every time they broadcast uh, Trump or Barr, as they do a thousand times a day saying no obstruction, no collusion, they should be obliged to put up immediately after that. That is false, says Bob Mueller. So I hate to say it's an exercise in debunking disinformation, but because the lies got a, you know, several week head start coming out of Barr's mouth, the truth has forever been playing catch up. And it has it has not been catching up all that effectively. Yeah, totally. And and you mentioned uh, Mueller writing that uh, scathing, maybe not scathing to us, but scathing to Mueller, that letter to Barr about his and, and apparently it was one of a couple of letters he wrote before the before the report was released uh, to Congress and the public. Um, how important is it? Uh, because we read in The Threat by Andy McCabe that when somebody like Mueller, particularly you know, Mr. Circumspect, goes to paper like that, it means a lot more than someone else just, you know, sending a, a reply on Twitter or writing a letter. So how important is it that he went to paper on that and also made his 10-minute public statement? I wasn't expecting either of those things from him. Yeah, writing a um, a rebuttal to the attorney general who technically at that moment was still Bob Mueller's boss was, uh, you know, I'm going to say out of character for Mueller. I mean, ordinarily, what we would do under those circumstances, if we had a dispute in our chain of command, we would go behind closed doors with our boss and we would say, hey, boss, I've got some real concerns here. But I think Mueller recognized how high the stakes were. And he also recognized how dangerous Barr's mischaracterization was and that it was done, I think, with... Um, I'm going to say evil intent. Uh, and Mueller felt compelled to put in writing his rebuttal and his correction of what Barr said. So I think for him, that was um, difficult, but necessary. And, you know, I appreciate that Mueller said, listen, I'm going to stay within the four corners of my report. 
The problem is, once he raises his right hand and swears to tell the truth, he will have to answer questions that are sort of proper questions in that they don't violate grand jury secrecy rules. So they wouldn't require him to disclose matters that are before the grand jury um, or compromise ongoing investigations. So I think those are two areas where he can decline to answer because those are legitimate reasons to decline to answer those questions. Beyond that, if there are questions that are posed that require him to go beyond the four corners of the report, you know, he's raised his hand and sworn to tell the whole truth. He's going to have to answer those questions um, as long as they are sort of properly f phrased. Uh, my concern is that you know, the Republicans are going to want to ask him about dossiers and spying on the Trump campaign as a distraction. And the Democrats may want to push Mueller well beyond the report to a place he's not comfortable going, you know, like if the president were a private citizen, wouldn't you have indicted him for obstruction of justice? I can tell you as a career prosecutor, the answer is, oh, hell yes. And but I don't know that Mueller will answer that question because of the way he has, you know, already signaled that, listen, the criminal justice system is not the place to formally accuse a sitting president of crimes. That place is the Congress. And, you know, basically Mueller's report was an impeachment referral, plain and simple. How Congress hasn't gotten that or why they are declining to open impeachment hearings has me scratching my big bald head every day. <laughs> yeah, uh, us too, believe, believe me. Um, and, you know, something like the question of if he were a private citizen, would you indict him? I'm, I'm, I'm almost sure, and I haven't worked with Mueller at all, but I, I just imagine him saying, I'm not going to answer any hypothetical questions. Hey, it's AG here. This is The Daily Beans. I hope you're enjoying my interview with Glenn Kirshner. We have a lot more to discuss, so stay with us. This helping of The Daily Beans is brought to you by Ancestry DNA. Ancestry DNA is a truly meaningful gift with the power to connect families over the holidays. Every family has a story, and Ancestry DNA can reveal our origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. Only Ancestry DNA uses the world's largest family history database to give a deeper and more detailed DNA story. You can combine what you learn from your DNA with over 100 million family trees and billions of records for more insight in your genealogy and origins. From discovering roots in over 500 regions to the most connections to living relatives, no other DNA test delivers such a unique and interactive experience. When I got my results back, I learned that I'm 96% Western European, and I'm related to people actually named Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> uh, I know they're not real, but... There are real people that were married named Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and they're my relatives. And I found out that one of my ancestors was actually a comedy musician who played the banjo in the 20s in New York. And that's crazy. So apparently, comedy and music is in my DNA. And who knows what you'll discover. See how the details of your family's past can spark new conversations with your family. This year, while visiting during the holidays, I'm sharing the results from my ancestry DNA so our whole family can talk about it together. Save big on ancestry DNA with special holiday pricing and spark meaningful conversations around the holiday dinner table. Give the gift that can unwrap their history. Head to my URL at Ancestry.com slash Daily Beans to get your Ancestry DNA kit on sale today. That's Ancestry.com slash Daily Beans. You'll be glad you did. And now back to our July 7th interview with Glenn Kirshner. Is anyone actually consulting the Democrats on how to ask Mueller these questions? Because I think that's very important. I assume so. Um, 
but I, I don't know it as a, as a matter of fact. I think you should. I think you should. And I think uh, David Priest should probably get in there and be, <laughs> who briefed him on a daily basis to be like, all right, here's how you ask Bob Mueller questions. And here's what he won't answer. I, I'm, I'm hoping they have some good consultants uh, in that in that vein. But uh, and I, you had mentioned the Republicans and we know from public reporting already the Republicans are planning on attacking Mueller. Uh, how do you think I'm I'm very interested to see how he responds to questions or at least statements that aren't questions. You know how they do that. That wasn't a question from folks like Jim Jordan and Matt Gates and Devin Nunes and Louis Gohmert, who I don't consider to be very intelligent. Yeah, I mean, those men are a little more than gum on the bottom of Bob Mueller's shoe. He will be unflinching in the way he deals with their nonsense and shenanigans, which is all it's going to be. You know, it so reminds me of when I was in a basically trial court prosecutor for 30 years, and I would have defense attorneys who would cross-examine my witnesses about everything other than the facts of what they saw. And that's what these Republicans are going to do. They're going to talk to Bob Mueller about everything other than the fact that Bob Mueller found extreme coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russians in volume one and 10 or 11 instances of obstruction of justice by the president of the United States in volume two. I would bet that the Republicans aren't going to ask him a single question about those topics. Yeah, no, I, I doubt it myself. Uh, and I, I imagine he just simply won't entertain shenanigans, as you said. He doesn't seem like a shenanigan entertainer. So um, this is all Congress. You know, this is all the stuff that's going on in Congress. And, and as you mentioned, they still have an open and impeachment inquiry, which I think would benefit them in trying to get these materials and that they need and the testimonies they need, at least speed it up through the courts, uh, as Mueller clearly gave them a map to do. But right now, there is a potential for the Trump administration to defy a Supreme Court decision if they aren't already by tr by trying to add a citizenship question to the census. And I was wondering what role you think the judiciary could potentially take in saving our asses versus Congress. Yeah, well, thank goodness the state of our judiciary remains strong because it may be our last hope if Congress sort of remains as timid as Congress has been thus far. Now, let me tell you, before I move on to the judiciary, I hope Congress has a plan. I hope Nancy Pelosi and company have a plan. Um, and, you know, I keep hoping for something good to happen. Um, and I keep being disappointed. But uh, I, I can't help but wonder what it is that was collected up as a result of the counterintelligence investigation. Maybe there is still something big coming that is going to make you know, 10 counts of obstruction of justice by the president look like jaywalking offenses. I don't know. Maybe there's something holding Pelosi and company back that is going to actually be so much bigger than the Mueller report. And that's why they are hesitating. But be that as it may, I think the courts have shown us over and over again that they are perhaps our last best hope at making sure this is going to sound ridiculously hyperbolic, but that our republic survives. Because every time a consequential issue has now made its way into the courts, whether it was the sort of lawfulness of congressional subpoenas issued for Trump's banking records and financial records, you know, we saw Judge Mehta in the D.C. federal district court. He's an old, uh, not old, he's young, but he's a former public defender in my backyard in the D.C. courts 
and he's a very strong judge and a very strong lawyer and a very strong person. And, you know, he took the administration to task when Trump's lawyers stood up and said, yeah, the, the House has no right to issue these subpoenas for my records. Uh, you know, Judge Mehta knocked that down at light speed. So the courts are doing the right thing. They can do the right thing quickly. We saw that again with Judge Ramos in New York in similar litigation over the uh, subpoenas for financial records from Deutsche Bank and Cap One for the president. The president's lawyers went down in flames very quickly in that one. And I know they're appealing and it's still ongoing, but the courts can move quickly and efficiently and the courts still care deeply about the rule of law. And most judges care deeply about governmental misconduct. I was in the courtroom when Judge Sullivan, whom I litigated before when I was a, a prosecutor in D.C., took Flynn's lawyers to task. I mean, that was a thing of beauty to watch, and it gave me patriotic goosebumps because it's like the courts still care. And, and I think they can move these things through the courts pretty quickly once the House starts filing you know, actions to enforce these subpoenas for tax returns and, and what have you. Um, you know, when we look back, we, we can see that there is a precedent for the courts to move quickly, you know, back during Watergate when um, Jaworski issued a subpoena for Nick, the Nixon tapes. I think he issued it in April of 74 and the Supreme Court got it. It worked its way up through the federal system and they resolved it in July of 74 unanimously against the president and in favor of the enforceability of the subpoena. You know, now these are different times, but I do think the courts know what's at stake. And I think the courts can and will move these things through quickly once Congress begins a steady stream of filing, you know, actions to support these subpoenas and enforce these subpoenas. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. There's so much that's unknown. You know, as I'm working my way or worked my way through reading the Mueller report very carefully, I know Mueller said up front that, hey, there's a lot of evidence we couldn't get because People lied to us. People destroyed evidence. People used encrypted apps. People, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he was mostly talking about seemingly Manafort at that point who breached his plea agreement. And I'm wondering, and I don't see any redactions for harm to an ongoing matter in the Manafort section in volume one, but what happens when you breach your plea agreement? All those crimes that you would have been charged with, I would think you would be charged with after you breach your plea agreement. And I don't see any of that, all of his lies and, uh, you know, any coordination or any, but, you know, I mean, he said that he didn't have evidence or couldn't establish evidence or find enough evidence to, to charge these as a, as a grander conspiracy. But like, what happens to all of those charges that Manafort was forgiven uh, because he was cooperating after he stopped cooperating? And I, I just don't, I don't see it anywhere. Maybe it's in the counterintelligence stuff, but it's, it seems to be missing to me. Yeah. So ordinarily, when a cooperator falls from grace and we um, withdraw from the plea agreement, we we are free to charge any crimes that we decided against charging or, or we agreed not to charge in light of the cooperation. But there's a second issue that we always have to confront under those circumstances. And it's the sort of the time and the resources and the energy that we would have to put into prosecuting somebody who is already been convicted a couple of times over, serving seven plus years, about to be prosecuted by the state of New York, hopefully successfully, and put another number of years on top of his head. Um, do we want to gear up for another prosecution that's going to take a whole team of FBI agents and prosecutors away from what they're doing, which is hopefully going after 
other wrongdoers. So it doesn't shock me that we didn't, you know, sort of launch into new charges against Manafort because he breached his plea agreement. Um, you know, that's always, um, uh, it's a, it's a challenging issue to confront when, you know, I, I always said that we are the federal government. I was the federal government when I was a federal prosecutor, but believe it or not, we still had limited resources. We had limited number of prosecutors. We had a limited amount of time to bring charges against a whole lot of criminals. So it's not always easy to bring every charge you would like to bring in a perfect world. Yeah, no, it just seems like these are specifically unique circumstances to which I think the public's right to know about those crimes that could have included coordination or conspiracy uh, might have just been decided not to be prosecuted in favor of the fact that he's probably already going to jail for the rest of his life. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, but these just seem like unusual circumstances to me. I know. And it sure seems like, you know, I, I was a very aggressive prosecutor. Um, I also like to think I aggressively protected the rights of every defendant that I prosecuted by making sure that I was, you know, abiding by the rules and the law and, you know, holding, for example, uh, if there was police work that was inappropriate and that may have violated a defendant's rights, well, it was my job to step in, remedy it, turn it over to the defense and dismiss a case if it was that dramatic a violation of a defendant's rights. And I did that when I was chief of homicide in D.C. on, on a number of occasions. Um, but I... Um, I hesitate to say this because um, I, you know, Bob Mueller taught me how to be a federal slash homicide prosecutor when he was my chief at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. But it's hard for me to conceive of how there is no larger conspiracy charge for everything we learned about what Manafort did, what Gates did, sharing polling data with Kalimnik and and rolling into that, the Trump Tower meeting with the Russians and Don Jr.'s participation and all of the 140 plus contacts that Bob Mueller laid out in volume one. I understand if you're going to go after the king, you got to kill the king. But boy, it sure looks like a conspiracy that many prosecutors could bring and many juries would convict on. Um, again, I don't want to second guess Bob Mueller. I always trusted his judgment before. Um, so, you know, we, we have to live with the decisions he made. Yeah, it's weird. At least if we knew why. But I suppose saying, well, we were going to charge him with all these other crimes, but we don't have the resources or we, he's already going to jail. That's going to taint any future jury. Uh, you can't just come out and say those kind of things, but uh, it would be irresponsible. But yeah, just like you were saying, the conversations in that August 3rd meeting with Manafort where he discussed um, the three specific states, four specific states, uh, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin with Kalimnik and gave him the polling data. And then it just so happens Trump won by 80,000 votes in those three states to steal the Electoral College. And and it just like what key piece of evidence is missing uh, to, to not yeah. be able to tie those together? I feel you on that. So but it is interesting. And I do trust Mueller's judgment. There has to be a reason I, I can't find it in the declinations. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, maybe there's like you said, more out there that we just don't know about yet. Yeah, there are 14 referrals. I think a couple of them are cases and the others are pending investigations to several U.S. attorney's offices. Now, unfortunately, they are still sort of at the whim of a bill bar because they're at various U.S. attorney's offices. But, you know, at least they are out there and hopefully they are moving forward. And as hard as it is for us to sit, to take a wait and see approach, given what we're experiencing every day 
by a runaway president, um, we unfortunately are going to have to wait and see what those other 14 matters, you know, what what is produced by those. Yeah, definitely. And then hopefully we'll get some counterintelligence information from Schiff and the Intel Committee, but probably nothing that <laughs> of substance that we can look at as citizens. But, uh, you know, maybe in 30 or 40 years, they'll declassify all of it. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, former, former federal prosecutor, D.C. chief of homicide, Army veteran. Thank you for your service. And MSNBC legal analyst, Glenn Kirshner. Glenn, thanks for coming on Mueller, She Wrote. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazel and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.